This is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with one of my philosophical heroes, Professor Philip Goff. Dr. Goff is currently a professor of philosophy at Durham University in the UK, and his research explores the philosophy of consciousness and focuses on how to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview. In recent years, Professor Goff has become a leading proponent of a position in the philosophy of consciousness called panpsychism which holds that consciousness is fundamental and is a ubiquitous feature of the physical world. I'm a huge fan of panpsychism, full disclosure, and I speak with Professor Golf about the view in this episode. A lot of the conversation involves kind of high-level philosophical jargon that might be inaccessible to the average listener who isn't acquainted with the relevant philosophical literature. So I thought it might be helpful just to briefly describe some of the concepts that are operating in the background of our conversation. This isn't scripted, and I'll try to be as short and simple as possible here. So first, I thought it might be appropriate just to define the term consciousness. People use this term in a myriad of different ways in the philosophical and scientific community. In the sense that we're using the term, it can be defined as follows. An entity is conscious if and only if there's something it's like to be that entity from the inside. Or you might think about it in terms of points of view. An entity is conscious if it possesses a subjective point of view on the world, right? So a bat, for example, is conscious if there's something it's like to be the bat from the inside or if it possesses a point of view. Or you can almost think about it in terms of sentience, although some philosophers might object to that characterization, right? But if an entity has the capacity for subjective feeling or sentience, then it's conscious. And consciousness is such an interesting phenomenon to study because it's still fundamentally a mystery. We still as a species don't understand what the nature of consciousness is. So in philosophy, there's this distinction between what's called the easy problems of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. And I want to briefly just articulate this distinction, because I think this is really important. So the easy problems of consciousness are those problems that are explicitly about behavior and functioning in the brain, which is to say, those problems that are about the objective mechanisms of the cognitive system. So some easy problems of consciousness might include explaining how we're able to discriminate sensory stimuli in the environment or explaining how we verbally express the contents of our internal states, or explaining how we integrate information from different perceptual inputs. All of these are easy problems of consciousness because they all ultimately denote different kinds of behavior and functioning in the brain, which means that explaining them is really just a matter of identifying objective mechanisms that occur in the brain. Now, to say that these problems are easy isn't to say that they're easy to solve from a scientific point of view, right? So neuroscience hasn't made a lot of headway on a lot of these so-called easy problems of consciousness. But they're denoted as easy because there's nothing inherently mysterious about them, right? We, we can understand, given the current procedures of neuroscience, how we could go about solving these problems in the future. But the same can't be said about the hard problem of consciousness, so the hard problem of consciousness can be posed as the following question. Why is there something it's like from the inside to be a brain? 
Now, what makes the hard problem hard is that it doesn't seem to be a problem about behavior or functioning, right? It seems like we could solve all of the so-called easy problems of consciousness and still have no idea why there's something it's like to be a brain. Why don't all these neural mechanisms in my brain just take place in the dark, in the absence of any subjective experience? Why are the lights on as opposed to off? That's one way you could kind of summarize the question. Now, we've thus far established correlations between conscious states and brain processes, but we haven't discovered anything that has the character of an explanation, right? So we've explained how, or we know that when certain brain processes light up, I might experience the percept of red, for example, right? So that's a correlation between a neural state and a conscious state. But we haven't explained why that neural process gives rise to conscious experience. So this is the hard problem. And again, it's hard because it's difficult to see how even in principle, the standard mechanisms and procedures of neuroscience could solve it. Panpsychism constitutes a kind of solution to the hard problem of consciousness. And again, panpsychism is the basic idea that consciousness is fundamental and pervades all of reality. It says that consciousness is everywhere, in a sense. And this position acts as a kind of middle position or an, or an alternative position to physicalism and dualism, where physicalism and dualism are kind of the two classic answers to the hard problem of consciousness. Now, for a long time, panpsychism was a radical fringe view that couldn't be respectively articulated within the confines of a philosophy department. But over the last decade or so, there's been kind of what you might call a panpsychist revolution going on in philosophy, where panpsychism has now, I think you could say, entered the philosophical mainstream. And a lot of that is due to Professor Goff and the work that he's done on The View. So I think I'll leave it there. I think hopefully that's enough preamble and it's not too tedious. I'm going to embed a link to some of Professor Goff's work, which I highly recommending, especially his most recent book, which is tailored towards mainstream consumption. And that book is called Galileo, Galileo's, am I saying that right? Galileo's Error. Um, so I highly recommend checking that out. I want to thank Professor Goff for speaking with me. It was a pleasure. So buckle your seatbelts, kids. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. A place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. How did you find yourself attracted to panpsychism and resilient monism? How did you come to this work? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. So I guess when I was uh, an undergraduate, we didn't learn anything about this stuff. We learned that the, the two options on the mind-body problem were dualism on the one hand, the view that consciousness is non-physical outside of the body and the brain, the physical workings of the body and the brain, or on the other hand, materialism or physicalism, that... Um, Consciousness can be just explained in terms of roughly in terms of the chemistry of the brain. Uh, and I came to think that both of these views were were 
had really deep problems, which we can maybe talk about. And so, you know, at first I wanted to be a materialist. I thought that was a scientifically credible option, but I just came to think, you know, you couldn't account for consciousness in those terms. And in fact, that that physical science wasn't designed to deal with consciousness. And, um, and so then maybe I was a closet dualism for a while, but I eventually became kind of disillusioned with it and wrote my end of, end of uh, degree dissertation arguing that the problem of consciousness is just irresolvable. And uh, I went off and tried to forget about it and, you know, try to do something else. But then I just discovered almost by accident this, you know, this middle way. Um, well, panpsychism, I generally talk about, um, you know, in, in my popular work. But, but as, you, as you rightly say there, I don't, it's, it's part of a more general view that's become known as Rossellian monism. Um, and discover, uh, panpsychism is just sort of one key form of that. Uh, and it was just discovering that that just seemed a kind of unusual view, but just seemed to avoid the, the deep difficulties that face these more conventional options. So that was just, you know, had such an impact on me. Like, wow, there's, you know, there's this view that, you know, the whole, whole of the mind-body problem, as I'd seen it, was like, which is the worst view? And then he seemed to have this view that just avoids all the problems. So that's what really, you know, brought me back to academic philosophy and, and uh, got me passionate about this topic, you know, so. Yeah, so resilient monism is really what... Uh made me passionate about consciousness studies too, because it, you know, it immediately struck me as a view that retains a respectable realism about consciousness while injecting consciousness into the causal nexus of the physical world. Could you just give the basic argument for Rosalian monism and talk a little bit about why it's a reasonable alternative or a plausible alternative to physicalism and dualism? Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. And um, so this is, it's called, so called because it's inspired by certain stuff the philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote in, in the 1920s, specifically in his 1927 book, The Analysis of Matter. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's a kind of tragedy of history that it was forgotten about for so long. I think, you know, for various historical reasons, like the... You know, I mean, there was, there was the Great Depression and the couple of wars and uh, actually, sorry, one war is in between the wars, isn't it? And, and then you've got the kind of really anti-philosophy zeitgeist of, of the latter half of the 20th century, logical positivism and so on. Um, and it's only kind of recently, you know, since I was a graduate student, you know, been rediscovered and is, is really causing a lot of excitement in, in academic philosophy. Um, but yeah, so what's the core of it? Um, I, I, so I think there's a kind of negative bit and a positive bit. So that the negative bit is that the idea that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is. Um, and that seems a kind of strange thing to say at first. You know, if you read, if you study physics, you seem to learn all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter. But uh, but what what Russell appreciated, and I think this, which is pretty un uncontroversial philosophy of science now, is that actually, for all its richness, physical science is confined to telling us about the behaviour of matter, about what it does. So, um, you know, physics tells us, for example, that matter has mass and charge 
And the, these properties are completely defined in terms of behavior, things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. This is all about what stuff does. And, you know, because that's why physics is so useful, right? Because if you learn really rich information about what stuff does, you can manipulate the natural world and create incredible technology. And that's what's been so impressive about physics. But actually, that's all it tells us about. And physical science tells us absolutely nothing about what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of matter. You know, what matter is independently of um, its behavior and what it does. So that's the kind of negative bit. It's this kind of, it's kind of nothing to do with consciousness. Is this realization that, um, you know, there's this huge hole in our, uh, in our standard scientific picture of things, which I think is, you know, really contrasts with the public perception of things. You know, the public think physics is telling us what stuff is. You know, we now know what, what space and time and matter are, you know, not completely, but we're sort of on this process of, of learning that. But so, so the negative of a receiving modism is, 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 is that's not really true. We're learning what stuff does, but not what it is. Okay, so then the positive bit is, well, maybe that, that, that bit we're missing out on, the intrinsic nature of matter that science doesn't reveal to us, maybe it's that that explains consciousness. Uh, so the thought is, you know, the, the stuff we learn about from physical science doesn't seem to explain consciousness. You know, it's about, but then, uh, but then there's this huge bit that physical, physical science is silent on. So maybe, maybe that's the bit that, that would really shed light on consciousness. So this comes in, in a panpsychist and a non-panpsychist form. So in the panpsychist form, the intrinsic nature of matter is just constituted of forms of consciousness, you know. Mm -hmm very simple forms of consciousness at the, um, at the level of microphysics, much more complex forms of consciousness in human and animal brains, but it's just consciousness. So, so physical science tells us what stuff does. So it's not dualism, right? It's, it's, there's just matter, um, you know, just particles or fields maybe, but it can be sort of described from two perspectives. Physical science tells us what it does, how it behaves, but its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So that's the panpsychist form. The non-panpsychist form, sometimes David Chalmers calls it panprotopsychism, yeah. uh, is the view that um, the intrinsic nature of matter, at least at the, at the micro level, is, is not itself forms of experience, but forms of proto-experience or proto-consciousness. So we can sort of define it negatively that it's, it has some intrinsic nature that is, is not itself experiential, but when combined in certain ways is, is able to constitute experience. Um, so, so that's the kind of view. It's, it's this hidden nature of matter that, that, that goes beyond what science tells us about, that we've got independent reason to believe is there, and then the positive bit that explains consciousness. So why is that attractive? Well, yeah. you know, it avoids as, as the big problems of dualism are how we make sense of consciousness doing anything. You know, it's many philosophers are persuaded from looking at the empirical science that physical processes in the brain can give us a complete explanation of everything we do, of all of our behavior. You know, if I'm scream and run away, you know, you could completely explain what's going on there, why I do that in terms of physical processes in my brain. If that, this is sometimes called the causal closure of the physical or the causal completeness of the physical. If that's right. true, 
there doesn't seem to be anything left for consciousness to do. If, if consciousness is non-physical and my behavior is completely explained in terms of the physical process in my brain, there's, there's nothing left for consciousness to do. It's like, it sort of crowds out, to use a, to use a term from economics, it kind of, it's like the physical crowds out that leaves nothing left for consciousness to do. Unless you endorse uh, some kind of causal overdetermination or something like that. Good, right? So you know your stuff. You're, you're. Uh, we're going to get into this obviously in more detail than I normally do in a podcast. Uh, yeah, no. And I'll also, let me just say, I'll define like some of these things in the preamble. I didn't want to okay, spend a lot of okay. time like defining okay. what phenomenal consciousness is. Okay. So I'll, I'll define some of these cool, things cool. to give a little like preamble. So we, so maybe I'll, I'll move up a notch then. If uh, it's difficult when it's something, you know, I love do, I do academic stuff, and then I do. Um, you know, the popular level stuff, and then it's, you know, yeah. what, what, are we, what are we aiming at here? Okay, so, um, yeah, so as you say, if, if, if causal closure of the physical is true, then let's, let me take the example of me screaming and running away when I'm in pain. If physical stuff in my brain is sufficient to do that, if there's a completely physical cause in my brain, then what do we say about my pain? Doesn't my pain cause me to scream and run away? You either say... No, my pain actually doesn't do anything. That's the epiphenomenalist view. Right. Or you say both my pain and the physical processes cause my behavior. But that seems like there's too many causes then. It seems like overdetermination. You know, there's too many causes of my behavior. Yeah. Um, it, looks, it looks like they're the only two options for the dualists, and, and both of them look pretty unattractive. Um, the problems with, the, with physicalism, on the one hand, is just that there are these very good philosophical arguments. I mean, there's one thing is, you know, I think it's broadly agreed that we don't have even the beginnings of a physical account of consciousness, of a physicalist explanation in terms of the kind of stuff physical science talks about. Uh, any kind of explanation of how electrochemical signaling could somehow give rise to subjective experience. Um, but I guess physicalists think, well, you know, we'll one day get there. The problem is there are just these pretty good philosophical arguments that seem to show that um, you, just, you just can't account for consciousness in those terms. Consciousness is sort of subjective and quality-involving, whereas physical science is objective and quantitative. And it's just the wrong sort of thing, the wrong sort of category of information to try and explain consciousness in terms of so we've got this problem uh, you know these deep problems of dualism and with materialism Rossellian monism just avoids both of these quite elegantly uh, it enjoy it avoids the causal closure worries because on according to Rossellian monism consciousness is part of the physical world mm -hmm. it's 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 the it's not what physical science tells us about but it's because physical science just tells us about behavior, but it's, it it's part of the intrinsic nature of physical stuff. So, you know, okay, there's physical processes in, in my brain cause my behavior, cause me to scream and run away when I'm in pain. So we say, well, what role does consciousness play? The Rossini monist says, that's fine because consciousness is the intrinsic nature of the relevant physical processes. So, um, we avoid that problem and we avoid the problems of physicalism because those those arguments are aimed specifically at attempts to explain consciousness in the terms of physical science perhaps in the terms of neuroscience or cognitive science there seem pretty good arguments that you can't account for consciousness in those terms but the Rossellian monist isn't isn't trying to do that 
It's trying to explain consciousness, not in terms of the behavioral stuff that physical science talks about, but in terms of the, the intrinsic nature of the physical that underlies that. So it's sort of, I like David Chalmers has this term for it. It's the spirit of dualism. Sorry, the letter, the spirit of dualism, but the letter of materialism. And I oh, kind yeah. of, you know, it, it's kind of got the good bits of both. And um, so, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, so I've, uh, I've always found, like for me, in coming to this view, I've always really found the hard problem of consciousness extremely persuasive. And in fact, that's actually how yeah. I got into philosophy, right? Like how, yeah. why are all these brain processes just taking place in the dark? How does dull matter give rise to technicolor experience? Yeah. Just like you said, we've established correlations, but no explanations. And yeah, I always, like you said, I found dualism very clunky. Like you have this separate plane of consciousness kind of over and above yeah. the physical world. How do these things causally interact if we're assuming the world is causally closed? And um, I guess one question that I have about the formulation of Brazilian monism is, right, so the idea is physics just describes the structure of the physical world. There is presumably some intrinsic nature, and we're going to say that this intrinsic nature is constituted by either consciousness or proto-consciousness. I definitely want to, before we get to kind of the cosmopsychist stuff, I want to talk a little bit more about um, pan protopsychism versus panpsychism. I actually wrote my undergrad thesis on uh, pan protopsychism, and in particular, a kind of version of pan protopsychism from Sam Coleman called pan qualitism. Uh huh. Um, very good. Very good. Do you a lot of, but in just people objecting to Resilient monism, how many, like, are there a lot of people that will just reject the idea that there has to be an intrinsic nature to the physical world and that it could just be dispositions all the way down? Yes, there are. There are a lot of, yeah, that's a very common thought. And um, for example, a lot of people at my university, Durham, defend this kind of view. My colleague, Stephen Mumford, is quite prominent. So yeah, so the Russellian monist starts off saying, oh my God, physics just tells us about what stuff does. You know, it can't be the full story. But someone like my colleague, Stephen Mumford, would say, well, if physics just tells us what stuff does, maybe that's all there is. So, you know, once you know what an electron does or how it's disposed to behave, you know everything there is to know about it. Um, so this is sometimes called pan-dispositionalism, that all fundamental properties are, are dispositions. So dispositions are things like, you know, fragility is a disposition, you know, something's fragile if it's disposed to break, or flammability, something's flammable if it's disposed to burn. But uh, the idea would be, you know, that the, the basic properties are the dispositions we find in physics. So physics characterizes mass in terms of, you know, gravitational attraction and resistance to acceleration. The idea would be that's all there is to mass. That's what mass is. It's just completely defined in terms of how it's disposed to behave. So, yeah, so th this is one common um, response here. Uh, yeah. That's just always struck me as very counter. Like, doesn't there have to be something which has a disposition? Like, there has to be a glass which has yeah. the disposition to break. You don't just have free floating dispositions in the world. But. Yeah. Well, they needn't. Well, they can still say that there is an individual that has the disposition, right? We've got the distinction between, you know, we're getting to quite abstract metaphysics now. We've got the distinction between objects and properties. Right, so that you know, objects, tables, chairs, or electrons, protons, uh, and then properties are the you know the characteristics of things. The you know, being round, square, 
negatively charged. So, um, so this pan disposition is, is a view that the only kind of properties are dispositions, at least at the fundamental level. But they needn't deny that there are individuals that have those dispositions. So it's just a view about properties. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I think it makes sense. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess there's disputes about how we think about... So, so some, you know, one dispute is that some people think that objects are just bundles of properties, is the bundle theory, you know, so an object would just be... Whereas um, others think, no, you need, the, you need something that has the properties. So this is people who believe in substrata. A substratum is the, is the, is the thing that has the properties. Uh, so I think, you know, a pan-dispositionalist could could go either way on that. So, so in that sense, the dispositions are not free-floating. They, mm. they could be attached to, a, to an individual, to a substratum, but there are no properties beyond the dispositions. The okay. dispositions are just pure... Sorry, the properties are just pure dispositions. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't want to get too uh, far astray into kind of more metaphysically abstract sorry, stuff. Sorry, no, 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 no. I asked you the question. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good response. Um, See, so yeah, I kind of want to hone in now a bit deeper on first, just talk about a little bit about panprotopsychism versus panpsychism, then dive deeper into panpsychism and talk about okay. maybe the constitutive forms versus the emergent forms and cosmopsychism, okay. which I'm finding myself increasingly attracted to, partially because I read your book. Um, and you make an argument for it there. Could I just right. briefly say, I mean, just yeah. briefly register that the, the reasons Rossellian monists reject pan-dispositionalism seem as we've raised it. I mean, one, there are arguments that try to show that if you're a pan-dispositionalist, if there are just dispositions, everything ends up getting defined in terms of something else. Because when you talk about what something's disposed to do, you're defining it in terms of its future impacts on other things right. uh, and so everything gets defined in terms of something else which gets defined in terms of something else and the thought is you might get a kind of vicious circularity here so some people try to argue that, that, that it's just unintelligible uh, right. there's you know lots of people back going back to russell have argued this but i think you know the more i mean i go for that as well but i think the more pressing argument is just this is it, you know if we if we go for the rossellian bonus picture we have this wonderful theory of consciousness, this wonderful way of accommodating consciousness in the physical world, as you say, very nicely avoiding the kind of clunky dualist alternative. So, yeah, so, so, so that's, I mean, even if pan-dispositionalism is sort of intelligible and makes sense, I think it's still motivation uh, to be a, a resilient monist because for the reasons we started with, you, you you can account for consciousness, avoiding the deep difficulties of the more conventional options. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I want to briefly, I just, I'm just i really interested just to get your take on panqualitism, and then um, yeah. we can talk about cosmopsychism. So you have panpsychism, this idea that consciousness, phenomenal consciousness pervades the fundamental level of reality, whatever that fundamental level is, right? And then panprotopsychism, the idea that proto-consciousness pervades yeah. The fundamental level. So for me, um, you know, I guess one problem with pan protopsychism is what are these pan yeah. or proto conscious properties, right? We know that they're not the properties of standard physics um, because there are these intrinsic properties, but we also know that they're not straight on phenomenal properties. So it, I, I feel like one worry is that it leads to a kind of mysterianism or something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. 
So panqualitism was very attractive to me because it seems to sidestep that worry, right? So Sam Coleman has this idea that, you know, maybe we can explain consciousness in binary terms where there's, there are points of view or is it the subjective uh, side of consciousness? And then there are qualia. So qualia would be kind of like the sensory properties that that figure in my conscious experience, like the redness, the the adonic redness of a tomato or something like that. So that's one way of thinking about consciousness. There's subjectivity and there's qualia. And panqualitism says, well, the proto-conscious properties are unexperienced qualia. So you have qualia in a very realist sense that exists at the fundamental level, but without the subjectivity. And so there is the fact that it avoids mysterianism as to why I find it attractive. And there's also the fact that it seems to avoid the subject combination problem. How do you get small points of views into yeah. larger points of views? And, you know, we can bring the combination problem into the picture. But I just, I just really am just, this might be like arcane to the audience. I don't really care. I just really am interested <laughs> in getting, uh, getting your perspective on this position here. That's it. I mean, I thought you put it very nicely, the, 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 you know, the attractions of the view. And I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd endorse everything you say. You know, it's a very interesting view. And Sam Coleman's defended it very well. I mean, he's a friend of mine. And, um, you know, I think it's a position we should take very seriously. He's working on, on, a, on a book at the moment. I'm looking forward to that coming out called uh, on, uh, on, on the Unconscious more generally as well. You know, he, that uh, he thinks that the mind is... It is is much less con- unconscious mind is is much more important in uh, human mentality than we've previously appreciated. But um, <clears throat> so yeah, as, as you say, it, it potentially avoids this worry with panpsychism that we we don't know if we don't know what the hell this stuff is. This you know uh, this stuff that goes beyond what science tells us about how can we access the the nature of matter. And it provides a, a positive candidate of, of what that intrinsic nature might be. I mean, I suppose, I can't remember exactly what I, I do talk about this in my academic book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. I can't remember what I was saying. But um, I mean, I guess I have the, you know, two standard objections. One of one is, you know, it's not clear that unexperienced phenomenal qualities is, is a coherent notion. I, I tend to think, you know, when, yeah. when we think about a when we think about a, a phenomenal quality, like, you know, what it's like to feel pain, what is that quality you're thinking of? What is that property? I, I'm inclined to think it's, it is the property of how an experience feels, right? If I'm thinking about the quality of pain, it, what I'm thinking of is, is, is it's, a, it's, it's, it's essentially how an experience feels, and it's hard to separate that, imagine that could be could exist without anyone experiencing it. Um, and, you know, it's, it sort of seems to make more sense, as you say, when you think of them as you know, colors on the surfaces of objects. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I think when, I mean, Sam holds it about, about all, all phenomenal qualities. And, you know, when you think about something like pain, it's, it's hard to make sense of the idea that, that the feeling of pain could exist without anyone feeling it. So that's, that's one problem. Um, but I guess the other standard view is, is that we seem to be led to there's something like the same kind of problems that the physicalist faces. Uh, so, okay, even if, even if the brain is full of these unexperienced qualities, 
how do we how do we put them together to make experience? You know, how do unexperienced qualities add up to make experience? There right. seems to be a, a very big gap there, and and you might think we face the sort of conceivability argument that faces the physicalist. You know, the physicalist says, but worry about physicalism is it seems completely conceivable that we could have all the physical processes going on in the brain without any experience. That seems to be true also of plant qualityism. It seems, okay, we could have all the physical processes, all these unexperienced qualities, but no experience. You know, why should complicated arrangements of unexperienced qualities add up to experience? So... Yeah, so those two worries about it. So I guess I'm guessing that Sam's response to your second worry would be the hard problem is really a problem of of explaining qualia, not subjectivity. I think he gives like a functionalist explanation yeah. of subjectivity. So like the the gap is between again, you know, dull matter to technicolor phenomenon. But if we yeah. build the qualia into the physical universe, just explaining subjectivity is maybe less of a hard problem, but then there, as you point out, there are these, you know, you can give like a pan qualitist conceivability argument where you have pan qualitist zombies or something like that. Um, and yeah, also just for people that might be listening so this idea of unexperienced, like one way I like to think about it is it's the classic question, question. Um, if a tree falls down and no one hears it, this is maybe one way of getting onto the intuition. Does it make a sound? Like, can you have a sound that's not experienced mm. from a subjective point of view? And the the pan qualitist would say, yes. But, you know, I definitely agree with you. It makes sense with respect to some sensory qualities, like color. You can make sense of colors existing, even if no one's um, witnessing them. But it's, it's less plausible when you talk about different uh, sensory modalities, for sure. Um, okay, yeah, I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, no, I think that's... Um that's that's i mean one thing on the pan quality side is if you think about that and uh, tom mcclelland who has uh yeah he has a kind of pan protopsychist view that um it's not pan qualities but i mean one thing he says that that's what i think is you know if you're thinking about the knowledge argument which yeah. I think is the most strong argument, you know, against materialism, or I mean, the starting point of a very strong argument against materialism. It seems to apply to qualities, you know. What Murray learns is what it's like to see red, the, you know, the qualitative character. So the pan-qualityist could say, yeah, she learns about the, the qualities. Um, so it seems to, it, it definitely gives us a reason to think that, that the qualities are not reducible to the quantitative vocabulary of physics. Mm. Um, or physical science more generally but that doesn't seem to give you an argument that subjectivity can't be analysed but um, yeah I guess I just think you know consciousness has these two aspects I think the qualitative character but also the notion of subjectivity the notice, the notion of that these qualities are uh, for a subject enjoyed by a subject um, and I think that second notion also, I don't think you can account for in the in the objective terms of physical science. So I think that there are two gaps, right? There's the gap between the qualities of experience and the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science, qualities and quantities. But there's also a gap between the objective and the subjective. You know, physical science is, is about a purely objective description of the world. But consciousness involves subjectivity, 
things having a first-person perspective. So I think there's also a gap there, and the punk politist has less to say about that gap, I think. That makes sense to me, yeah. The, the, some, Coleman will put it in a way where it seems so, and like he says, consciousness is simply the relation whereby qualities are brought into subjectival awareness. It's the curling yeah. of the material world back upon itself. But yeah, as you know, I, I definitely sympathize with the idea that there's still this huge objective, subjective gap as well. I, I think he's also open to maybe having non-reductive accounts of the subjective bit. So maybe not giving some kind of functionalist account. Maybe it's just some primitive awareness relation, non-physical awareness relation. So I think that might be a more plausible version of the view to my mind if you, if you, if you combine it with some kind of non-reductive version of, of the subjectivity aspect. But, yeah. Mm. So yeah, I want to talk about uh, different kinds of panpsychism now. Um, yeah. So there's this distinction between what you call micropsychism and cosmopsychism, and I've uh, been flirting a lot more with cosmopsychism lately. Especially, it's weird. It I've like gotten, I've been reading more like Buddhism and like getting a little more into meditation, and it seems like a lot of the Buddhist views about the one like align with cosmopsychism in a way. Uh -huh. So could you just explain? Well, you yeah so, yeah, so I guess micropsychism is, is the view that's standardly assumed where um, it's the fundamental micro-level building blocks of the world that have experienced. So they, perhaps electrons and quarks have unimaginably simple forms of experience and then the very complex experience of a human animal brain is, is somehow built up from the very simple experience of these basic building blocks. And I suppose this reflects a, a very common idea that, you know, a kind of Lego brick picture of the physical world that we've got all the little, the little bits and then they combine in various ways and make big bits. But, um, well, uh, Jonathan Schaffer, <coughs> excuse me, Jonathan Schaffer for a long time now has been defending a view that he calls priority monism that kind of turns this on its, uh, on its head. So for Schaffer, there's only one fundamental thing, and it's the whole universe. And, you know, everything else exists and is the way it is because the universe exists and is the way it is. So rather than the table exists because of its parts arranged in certain ways, instead the table exists because the whole universe exists. And, um, and, and the particles exist because of the universe as well. So, you know, he's argued, he's, he's not, not, doesn't talk about panpsychism or anything. His, his, um, he argues that this fits better with modern physics, makes sense of things weird, things like quantum entanglement, which, which are kind of hard to make sense of on this sort of Lego brick view. Um, and, and also, I mean, it might make, might fit better if you think of, uh, you know, it seems like a, a lot of physicists, think that uh, the fundamental things are not particles, but fields, you know, kind of universe-wide fields. And particles are just sort of local excitations in fields. So you might think that fits better with the priority monist view that the fundamental thing are these universe-wide fields. Um, so, so that's the case. So yeah, so if you combine that view, priority monist view with, with panpsychism, you get cosmopsychism. The fundamental thing is the conscious universe and everything else exists as aspects of that fundamental conscious universe. So my mind isn't built up from little conscious minds inside it. 
Rather, it derives its existence as an aspect of this more expansive conscious uh, mind that is the universe. And it, incidentally, if you're interested in connecting it to uh, Buddhist stuff, yeah. uh, Itai, Itai Shani, who's oh, yeah, a prom- some prominent defender of cosmopsychism, he also uh, <laughs> uh, links it to some spiritual, mystical um, um, kind of views, but in, you know, in a quite sophisticated way. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, for me, I mean, if you're talking with someone who's not favorable towards panpsychism, they're going to give you the incredulous stare, no matter what view you give them. But um, I don't know. For me personally, this is, and I want to get into the combination problem and all that stuff. It's just a lot. It is more intuitive to me, like to suppose that the universe is conscious and our our con- our individual consciousnesses are just aspects of this one universal consciousness. So we're, our our points of view maybe aren't as metaphysically distinct as we would pre-theoretically suppose that seems more intuitive to me especially like after meditating you can really start to convince yourself of it Uh um then to suppose that like okay if the universe is built up of these like fundamental quirks or whatever we want to say each of these quirks has a little what it's likeness so i don't know yeah it's definitely more intuitive yeah yeah but um yeah. One of the main problems for panpsychism is what's called the combination problem, which I already kind of briefly brought up. And there's a there's a similar problem for Cosmos. So the combination problem, and you can correct me in my formulation if you have a different way of formulating it, but it's like, okay, you're saying consciousness exists at the fundamental level, and it's built up um, from my consciousness, right? My macro consciousness is built up from all these little consciousnesses. So how do you, how do these tiny points of view and consciousnesses combine to yield my unified consciousness? So there's this combination problem for panpsychism or micropsychism. And then cosmopsychism is kind of like the opposite problem. It's like, okay, you're saying we're all aspects of this universal consciousness, but how does this one universal consciousness decompose into these into our points of view. I think, uh, is it Gregory Miller? I think he calls it the decomposition problem. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. Yeah, but, I, yeah I think people argue over the terminology. <laughs> I yeah. think people call it the decombination or decomposition or uh, fragmentation. I don't know. So people fight over the term. They want to own the terminology. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, uh, the article that I was reading of yours um, prior to this was... was you're arguing in favor of cosmopsychism. It just came out in the new handbook of panpsychism. Oh, yeah. Um, so could you just give your basic perspective on the combination problem and the decombination problem and why you think cosmopsychism is better equipped to solve it? We can get more into the weeds as we go. Yeah, so there are very, there's different ways of... I mean, you, you, I think you did a really good job of giving the, the basic intuitions that there's, in both of these views that there's a problem of how little conscious things are supposed to add up to a big conscious thing or how a big conscious thing is supposed to fragment into little conscious things. But there, and then there are various arguments to try and make these problems more concrete. So, you know, one way I've tried to press it is, you know, with a con- conceivability worry, so we're back to the same worry with, with uh, panqualityism. You know, it seems you can, for any collection of conscious particles, you can, con- you know, no matter how complex their arrangement, you can conceive of 
those complex conscious particles existing without forming any uh, conscious whole. So, so the kind of you can imagine kind of if, if your listeners know about zombie arguments, you know, you can imagine a kind of zombie argument where um, it's just that the little bits of the zombie are conscious. So we've got a, a physical duplicate of a human being. All the little bits of it are conscious, but there's no consciousness corresponding to the whole or the whole brain. Um, so that's one way of putting the combination problem against uh, micropsychism, but I think that applies equally to cosmopsychism. I think David Charles has made that point that you know you can conceive of a conscious universe without any parts of it being conscious. So just right. at that level, I think the problem is the same. <coughs> Sorry, I'm coughing a bit. Um, I mean, I guess what what's what's bothered me for a while is, is a slightly different problem. Um, I think I call the phenomenal analysis problem or something, that, um, that consciousness doesn't seem to admit of analysis. You know, I mean, contrast it with something that obviously does admit of analysis. Like, I always give the example of a party, you know. Right. What is it for there to be a party? Well, it's for people to be dancing, drinking, having a good time. It's hard to put it precisely. But you yeah. can clearly analyse what it is for there to be a party in more fundamental terms. You know, um, and I kind of think where, where you've got reduction from big to small, you need to give some kind of analysis to bridge the gap. So once once we, we, we know that what it is for a party to exist is for people to be having a good time, then we can make sense of how a party is grounded in, you know, people having a good time. Um, so where you can give an analysis, I think that that is what you need to give a kind of top-down reduction. Whereas I think in, I suggest in, in, the, in the Cosmopsychist case, there's a very different model of reduction, where, which I call grounding by subsumption, where something right. is, and, I, and I, I try to give some examples of this from various areas of philosophy, where something is subsumed in a more expansive reality. And you might think um, conscious experience itself is like this. You think, you know, my conscious experience has uh, you know various aspects, you know my color experience, my sound experience, uh, but I mean you might think the whole experience is just a kind of bundle that's built up from those like atomically, but it's also quite intuitive to think actually what is more fundamental is the unified whole mm. and these uh, these aspects of my my experience like my visual experience, my sound experience are sort of abstracted from the more basic unity of the whole. Um, so, so in the Cosmopsychist picture, you might have, yeah, there's, the, 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 the whole universe is a sort of fundamental unity and, um, and our conscious minds are sort of partial abstractions from that unity. So I think it's a very different model of, um, of grounding and it's one that doesn't seem to require analysis. You know, I didn't talk about analysis there. So, so, so consciousness doesn't seem to admit of analysis. Um, and, you know, it doesn't seem to be, I didn't actually explain why that is. I mean, just to put a point very intuitively, you know, there's complicated arguments here, but just to point very intuitively, you know, when I say Sarah's feeling anxious, I don't think I can analyze that claim in in more fundamental terms, you know. Right. In, in 
you know, like con- contrasting again with the party. When I say there's a par- party next door, all I mean is, is people having a good time. But when I say Sarah's anxious, I think I can't express that claim in more fundamental terms. I'm just saying this person is feeling this way. I can't imagine analyzing that in such a way that I'm really talking about conscious particles or something, you know. Uh, so, so, so it doesn't seem to me that you can analyze what it is for someone to have an experience in more basic terms. So that seems to rule out the kind of top-down reduction. But maybe that it's still consistent with this um, very different notion of reduction where things are, are grounded by being subsumed in a, in a more expansive whole. So I don't think that solves all of the problems. It still doesn't solve the conceivability problem I mentioned earlier, but I think it's one important advantage. Yeah, yeah. So I, I should say, um, we're, when we're talking about the combination problem and the decombination problem, we're really just talking about uh, constitutive forms of of panpsychism versus like, so there's this distinction just for the listeners between emergent panpsychism and constitutive panpsychism where constitutive panpsychism says that our consciousness, what you call O consciousness is, uh, is grounded in or constituted by the fundamental consciousness where constitution is seen. Um, it's cashed out in like the, in virtue of language, right? Like we have our consciousness in virtue of more fundamental consciousnesses and it implies a kind of ontological free lunch um, where our consciousness is nothing over and above the fundamental consciousness. So then there are other emergent forms of panpsychism that, uh, you know, it says that like, no, it's not our consciousness isn't constituted by this fundamental consciousness, but it emerges from it. But uh, for reasons that you discussed and that I think I agree with, that kind of faces a lot of the same problems as dualism. So... Yeah. yeah, I guess, I don't know if it was worth just spelling that out, but... Um. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one, one analogy I give, so, you know, think about the party. The party is, you know, people having a good time makes a party, but it's not like the party is this extra thing that sort of floats above their heads. You know, all it is for there to be a party is for people to be dancing, drinking, and so on. But then I contrast that with another analogy. Imagine wizards doing a kind of ritual dance, and that brings into being a spirit that sort of floats above their heads. That's that's a very different. That's like the, the spirit is something completely new that's been brought into being. So, um, I mean, this is how kind of the British emergentists of the nineteenth century thought about consciousness. They thought they thought consciousness is produced by the physical, but it's some completely new thing. It kind of is is really extra to the physical in some radical sense. So, you, yeah, as you say, you can have emergentist forms of panpsychism where conscious particles produce human consciousness, but human consciousness is some radically new thing. And as you say, I mean, there's one way of saying, rejecting panpsychism is to say, the emergentist view faces all the problems of dualism. The constitutive view faces all the problems of physicalism. So we got nowhere. So so that's one way of of seeing the, uh, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I try to say, I try to say actually, you know, both of these problems look less bad. And what I've been trying, what I've been thinking about recently, I was just in Copenhagen a couple of nights ago talking about uh, the, is um, m- maybe a kind of combination of the two where you have. Mm. Um, so we talked, to, we just distinguished between individuals and properties uh, where, where you say this, the individual is emergent, but the properties are 
reducible. So to put it in terms of, you know, so you might have an emergent view about subjects, you know, that the subject, the conscious, the, the macro level subject, the humans is, is irreducible, is genuinely and radically emergent, but its experiences are not emergent. Its experiences are shared are inherited from, are constituted of the experiences at more basic levels. Um, so I've been messing around with, with that kind of view at the moment. But anyway, so I mean, I, I, you know, I'm open to lots of different options here. Sorry, go on. Would that, uh, could one argue that that kind of view, which combines both the constitutive and the emergent, that it faces both problems of the emergent and the constitutive? Uh, why, why think that it, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, it avoids both? So the problem with emergentism, if, if we think it's the same problem as dualism, so the thought would be, well, what we want to, so we want my consciousness, my experiences um, to do causal work and not to, um, not to be, over, so we don't, so the problem for the dualist is, the stuff at the, the micro level has already done all the causal work. But on this view, that's fine because my experiences uh, are constituted of stuff at the micro level. So my experiences, so there's no worry about the causal work of my experiences mm. because um, they're, they're constituted. So my experiences, my consciousness is constituted by... Um, stuff at the uh at the more basic level so we avoid the causal closure worry uh the thing that's emergent is just me <laughs> so yeah. um and it's supposed to avoid the problems of physicalism because because i guess the the the, the most i think the strongest way of putting the combination problem, well, this conceivability worry, but it seems like no matter how many conscious subjects you have, that doesn't seem to entail the existence of a macro level conscious subject. No, matter, no facts about conscious particles seem, they seem completely compatible with the exact absence of a subject at the macro level. So we bridge that gap with, I don't know, fundamental laws that ensure that there is there are macro level subjects in certain circumstances. Uh, and then we avoid the causal closure worry by saying that the, the experiences enjoyed by those fundamental macro level subjects are not brand new. They're derived from the experiences of more basic levels. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm just early days thinking about this. Maybe it doesn't make sense, but it seems to me potentially. I see, I see the attraction. Here. That helped in clarifying it. Another thing that you say at the end of the article, the Cosmopsychus article, that really uh, made it click for me is you say the crucial advantage of Cosmopsychism, and I know we're uh, approaching the end of our time. Uh, oh, it's okay. I'm all right for a bit longer. The crucial advantage of cosmopsychism as opposed to micropsychism is that it does not require a deflationary view of O subjects and their experiences. According to cosmopsychism, my consciousness yeah. is an aspect of the consciousness of the universe, and this is consistent with supposing that my consciousness is a part of the metaphysically privileged structure of reality. Could you just elaborate on that and explain why micropsychism arguably does require a deflationist view of O subjects? 
Um, yeah, so it's like, it's again, it's this point about 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 analysis, I guess. That um, it just flows from that. Yeah, I think so. Maybe I've put this same point in, in different ways in different papers. I can't remember exactly. I mean, I wrote this paper years ago, actually. It, it, it was a very long time coming out, this handbook, for various reasons. Uh, but yeah, I guess I think um, the, the model of reduction in the top-down case is always some kind of analysis. It's always that um, involves... But I, mean, I give reasons to think that involves a kind of lightweight notion of existence. So when you, you know, when you say a party exists, you're not, re- you're not really meaning to say there's this thing, the party. It's just a sort of disguised way of saying there are people having a good time. So parties aren't really full-blooded metaphysical entities. It's just when you talk about parties, you just talk about, oh, you know, when you talk about countries or the media, you know, these right. aren't really It's things, not like a thing that exists. Yeah, in a kind of metaphys- metaphysically hardcore sense. It's right. just useful ways of talk. Talk of countries is just useful ways of talking about, you know, people and what they do. Uh, talk of the media is useful ways of talking about, you know, various kinds of human activity. Uh, whereas I think consciousness is not like that. I don't think when I say, you know, Sarah's feeling anxious... Uh, this is a disguised way of talking about something else. You know, the talk of the media is a disguised way of talking about something else. Talk of Sarah feeling anxious is not a disguised way of talking about the particles in her head. I'm talking about Sarah and her anxi- anxiety, and that's the bottom line of the claim. So, so I want to say, in some sense, consciousness is, is irreducible. Um, but I also think there's maybe scientific reasons to think it's not fundamental. So this is the kind of paradox. We've got kind of, I think, philosophical reasons to think consciousness is sort of irreducible. It can't be analyzed in more fundamental terms. But then we've got scientific reasons to think it's not fundamental. Um, And so this is, you know, so I've explored a couple of ways of squaring that circle, as it were. You know, one is this idea that, okay, it's, it's not fundamental, it's irreducible, but it's not fundamental in the sense that it's grounded by being um, subsumed in a more expansive entity. Uh, that's the Cosmopsychist version, or the thing I'm playing with now, that, you know, one bit of it's fundamental and one bit isn't, you know, so, um, right. you know, the, the, the individual is fundamental, but its properties are not fundamental. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's actually that's that's I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> that's kind of helpful to me to say see there's a consistent thing there. Of, uh, you know, and, and different plant psychics. I think you know Luke Roloffs is oh, uh, yeah he's you know he's more more real reduction. You know, he says if he wasn't a plant psychist he'd be a physicalist. You know, he's really trying to go for a strongly reductionist picture. Um, Hedda Hassel Merck on the other side is I, I'm sure she'd be a dualist if she wasn't a plant psychist. I think she's more for the kind of consciousness is irreducible. And I guess I feel like I'm in the middle. I'm trying to find ways in which, in one sense, it is reducible, in one sense, it isn't. So, you know, I, I just I really find that intuition or just that claim compelling that uh, you, you, do, you don't have to endorse an, a deflationary view of O subjects and cosmopsychism, their aspects of the fundamental consciousness, whereas you might have to on micropsychism. What do you think as one of the leaders in the field of this proposed position, how, like, how is the panpsychism revolution going? 
how effective is it right now? I, I constantly see you on Twitter fighting these battles <laughs> with uh, the old guard physicalists. Do you, what's your what's your sense as to how is this really a revolution that we're in right now, or is this kind of just like a fringe group of academics that are trying to make some noise? Like, what's what's your sense of how things are going? I think it's going really well, and I think um, I mean I think we're we're finding you know not only for I mean because so much has changed you know this view was you know you couldn't publish in this view ten years ago you know but <laughs> when I started applying for academic jobs people said a couple of well-meaning professors said, you know, maybe don't talk about the panpsychism. <laughs> uh, but now, you know, it, it's, a, it's taken very seriously. I've got, you know, graduate students from all over the world coming and studying with me. And, uh, um, you know, and we're finding scientists taking it seriously. You know, we've got a scientific American. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the English equivalent of that is, is about to do something on panpsychism. You know, we've got, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's getting... And we've got, you know, integrated information theory, proponents of that, enthusiastic oh, right. about panpsychism. That's also, you know, in the area of neuroscience. But, um, you know, what I've noticed recently is kind of um, a lot of anger, <laughs> like on Twitter. It's funny, it's gone from laughter to anger. You know, panpsychism used to be laughter. <laughs> that was just like real anger. And real That's because they know they're threatened. Well, I guess so. I guess um, a couple of weekends ago, I had to take a break. It, was, <laughs> it normally doesn't bother me, these, you know, this stuff. But, uh, yeah, some real kind of abuse there and, you know, sort of suggestions that this, you know, panpsychists are an, an abusive network or so. I don't know. Anyway, but uh, so so maybe I guess that I guess that does show it's having some kind of some kind of impact. I mean. You know, I guess time will tell. Um, um, you know, I, but I, I'm more passionate about, uh, you know, things a bit more generally. I mean, I suppose we've, we've gone from, a, you know, the bigger picture on consciousness. We've gone from, you couldn't talk about consciousness for a lot of the 20th century. You know, it was seen right. as a taboo topic, not suitable for serious science. Or, you know, you couldn't publish if you were an anti-physicalist. Uh, I think from the 1990s, partly due, largely due to David Chalmers, you know, it's, people think of it as a serious scientific problem. But I think, I think what still a lot of people, although they, although they now take it as a serious scientific problem, I still yeah. think the very common reaction is, oh, we just need to do more neuroscience and we'll crack it. Uh, and what I've been trying to get at in my popular work is, you know, the philosophical underpinnings of the problem. You know, the reason this isn't just another scientific problem, you know, I, I've been saying a lot recently, you know, consciousness is not observable. And this is yeah. one reason it's very different to other scientific problems. That, that the whole, you know, this is the point of connecting to Galileo, that science was kicked off and it was, in a way, it was designed to exclude consciousness. So it's not surprising that we end up with this problem. It's kind of built into how we set up science. So I think, you know, my hope is people start to see this isn't just another scientific problem and we've really got to, rethink how we think about science that's the more important thing for me actually more than the panpsychism and yeah. but it's so hard to do because i think so many people are really passionately attached to a certain kind of scientism and such yeah. that it becomes kind of part of their identity and uh, you know that this just idea of you know this very kind of limited sort of 
experimental focused conception of science is the only way of answering matters that you think we ruled out when we showed logical positivism was self-defeating, but it's still there and it's still so much part of people's identity. But I think it's, you know, I think it is changing and, and that's gonna, that's a massive deal because, you know, just revolutionizes our understanding of, of what science is. Um, so, so, you know, it's not surprising. It's, it's hard to kind of break that, but, um, yeah, it's exciting. Things are changing very quickly. Who knows where it's going to go, but there's definitely, you know, it's definitely a lot happening at the moment. Well, yeah, well, you just said dovetails with the last question that I was going to ask you and you might've just actually answered it, but that's, um, and this will be the last question. Do you think, um, we'll ever reach a point where there is a consensus and that we really solve the hard problem of consciousness, just, you know, We'll, we'll, in the future, we'll view consciousness like we used to view, like we now view life or something like that. Um, is it, I guess, yeah, what you just said kind of helped me. Is it just a matter of reconceiving how we go about doing science? So then maybe um, we could solve the problem of consciousness scientifically? Or do you yeah. think that this is always going to be a philosophical problem and we'll never come to a consensus on it? I'm very hopeful. So, I mean, the way a lot of materialists like to give the analogy to life, uh, they say, oh, you know, we used to worry about life and then we realized right. it was not the, you know, it was just another, it was just another scientific problem. I mean, I don't think consciousness is like that for I mean, the reasons I've just given. I mean, I think, I think we're currently going through a phase of history where people are blown away by the success of physical science and, you know, the incredible technology it's produced. And that needs people to think, this is the truth. This is, you know, this is um, the complete story. You know, we haven't got there yet, but that we, we know the way to get the way to get the complete story. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward that there are pretty clear reasons why consciousness doesn't fit in that conventional scientific account um, because it's unobservable. Um, I mean, science is used to dealing with unobservables, but as I've tried to argue, this is the only case where what we're trying to explain is unobservable. You know, in all other cases, we postulate unobservables to explain what can be observed, like right. fundamental. But in this case, the thing we're trying to explain is unobservable. I mean, for that, that, that reason alone, it's so radically different. Um, and I, actually, I mean, I actually think that, that the majority view of philosophers is, well, maybe I won't go there. Um, you know, so I, I just think there are pretty straightforward reasons why it doesn't fit in the, um, the conventional scientific picture. And also, you know, people like Daniel Dennett have completely appreciated this, and that's why they think it doesn't exist. But I, I think the public will never buy that. You know, it's just the reality of feelings and experiences is just so evident. Yeah. So I think that the reality of consciousness is so evident, and it's ill fit with our conventional scientific approach is 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 not that difficult to to grasp is is fairly straightforward you know i i, re I really think there's um you know there's going to come a point where there will be consensus i think that consciousness exists 
and that our conventional scientific approach can't accommodate it. I, I really believe, you know, yeah. in, in, in 30 years' time, there will be consensus on that. And, but that entails really a radically new way of thinking about science and the project of finding out what reality is like. And, I mean, at that point, we'll be at first base and, um, you know, we, we, we can start to, you know, start doing metaphysics properly, which I don't, I don't think, I don't think we've ever had in history a time where we've got mature natural science and people take consciousness seriously and understand what that implies. Um, mm. So, you know, I think if we ever get to that point, I think we will start doing metaphysics properly. And um, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I'm confident we'll get there and, and things are moving very quick. So it looks promising. Yeah. Um, yeah, the idea that consciousness doesn't exist has always been insane to me. Just because, like, it, for me, it's the only thing that we know that exists. Like, everything we have been a dream, it could be in a simulation, but I know there's something it's like to be me right mm. now. But uh, yeah, I think that's a good place to end. I mean, just let me add this. It might, might be sure. of interest because, yeah, so I think most of us, I think what, what the public think and what a lot of scientists who work on consciousness think is consciousness exists. And we need to explain it. And we haven't yeah. found the explanation yet. I think almost no, that's, that's the view David Chalmers calls type C physicalism. In his paper, Consciousness and its Place in Nature, where he has the, all the positions, A, B, C, D, E, F. That's what he calls type C physicalism. Almost no philosophers who work on these issues think that is plausible. They either think the type A position, which is kind of roughly consciousness doesn't exist, Daniel Dennett type stuff. Right. or B. It does exist, but it's a kind of confusion to think you need to explain it. Uh, and so there isn't really a hard problem. So in either way, there isn't really a hard problem. That's, that's what the, you know, the philosophers, 99% of philosophers who work on these issues think, whereas there's a disconnect. Most scientists and general public think, you know, oh, there's this hard problem that we can solve in conventional scientific terms. That's just, what, if you just work through the philosophy, it's pretty obvious that that view doesn't make sense. Uh, so I think there's a disconnect with the, you know, the, the academic overwhelming consensus and the view of, and, and, and this might, uh, might be a problem with philosophers who don't reach out enough. So you know, that's partly what I'm trying to do, reaching out. And, and that, that gives you more confidence that, um, that, you know, change is sort of inevitable anyway yeah sorry that was a bit long-winded and rough. no no i loved it um yeah the whole type b physicalism and why that's implausible it's a conversation for uh for another day right, right. Um, which you've written a lot about as well um i want to thank you professor like i said you've been a huge influence in my uh -huh. thinking and uh i appreciate you coming on and i appreciate all the work that you do brilliant thanks cody well it's been really this has been quite a unique i've done so many of these podcasts where just talking through the very, very basic, basic, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't news and, and, it, and it's, yeah, it's really great to take it up to another level and here there's some good work going on out there of, uh, graduate students do, you know, doing some good work on this stuff. So good to hear. <laughs>